You are listening to The Loop Podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Loop Podcast. I am Dr. Morgan Martin, and my pronouns are she and her. Today is a special episode as it is dedicated to Pride Month, which is celebrated annually in June. And we are thrilled to have Dr. Blair Peters with us here today for this episode. Dr. Peters is currently a gender-affirming fellow at OHSU in Portland, Oregon, and he will be staying as assistant professor in both plastic surgery and urology. Welcome, Dr. Peters. Thank you so much. I am very, very happy to be here and very fitting that we're doing this on June 1st, which is the first day of Pride Month. Could not have been better timed. So my name is Blair Peters. I use he and they pronouns. I'm an incoming assistant professor at OHSU. And outside of clinical work, I do a lot of career education and career advocacy and activism. And super excited for this episode of The Loop. A couple of things I want to throw out there before we really get into it. A lot of what we're going to talk about today, especially regarding queer history, is going to be in the form of sort of decades and important keynote events, but it can really be overlooked how much of queer history is really our culture. So I encourage everyone listening today, especially this month, to really engage with the queer community, attend events if you can, you know, virtual prides, however that format's going to look for you, consume queer media and follow and support queer artists, especially Black transgender women. Um, Queer history is really rich, it's very visual, it's immersive, and I really want you to allow yourself that full immersive experience. Thank you, Dr. Peters. That's amazing. So I also want to introduce our other host, which is Zaina Ranapur. He is part of our core Loop Committee member. He is a medical student at UAB, and he is making his recording debut today. So welcome, Zane. Hey everyone, my name is Zane Aryanpour. I use he and they pronouns and I'm a fourth year medical student at UAB in Birmingham, Alabama. When I'm not behind the scenes making content for The Loop, I'm a queer activist and clinical researcher. I'm honored and thrilled to be co-hosting our Pride Month episode and I hope all of our listeners enjoy it. Thank you, Zane. I'm so glad to have you here today. So as we said before, today's episode is going to provide some background on key LGBTQ plus history, queer medical history, provide some overview on important recent legislation, and give insight into allyship and the importance of diverse representation in medicine. So without further ado, I'll pass it over to our hosts, Zane and Dr. Peters. So we are going to kick this episode off with some pertinent queer history starting in the 20th century. So first of all, in the 1920s, the first gay rights organization was founded by Henry Gerber in Chicago. The name of this organization was the Society for Human Rights, and it was short-lived, unfortunately, due to profound political pressure. So we're going to jump forward to the 1940s. And to just give some perspective, during the 1940s, psychologists and psychiatrists continued to perpetuate the belief that homosexuality is a mental illness during this time. And this will give some context as to what happens afterwards. So in the 1950s, the Mattachine Society was founded by Harry Hay, and the main goal of this organization was to protect gay rights and to change societal perspective of homosexuality. Also in the 1950s, the Daughters of Bilitis was also founded in San Francisco as the first lesbian gay rights organization. Unfortunately, in the 1950s, the government and military actively persecuted and fired homosexual employees, 
And this was supported by Eisenhower's Executive Order 10450. Also during this time, the American Psychiatric Association deemed homosexuality as a sociopathic personality disturbance in the DSM, or the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders. It's really crazy to hear that history, Zane, especially when 1950 was only 70 years ago. That's just setting the stage for what was going on at the beginning of the 20th century. As we move into the 1960s, Illinois became the first state to decriminalize homosexuality in 1962. In August of 1966, the establishment of the National Transsexual Counseling Unit, which was the first peer-run and support advocacy group in the world, came to, and this came after a riot that ensued between transgender customers and the police in a San Francisco cafe. So the National Transsexual Counseling Unit came out of this riot, and it became the first peer-run and support advocacy group in the world. So on to the meat of what happened in the 1960s, on June 28, 1969, a violent protest erupted between the police and the patrons of the Stonewall Inn, a gay bar in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. Local patrons of the bar had been subject to violence and discrimination from the police for many preceding years. The Stonewall Inn was actually owned and operated by the mafia, who regularly bribed the police to refrain from violence against the bar clientele. However, the police regularly raided the bar and arrested patrons for being openly gay. Among the individuals regularly targeted by the police were transgender and gender nonconforming individuals. So, on the night of June 28, 1969, the police attempted another raid and were ultimately met with profound resistance from the bar patrons. Everyone just got very tired of the injustice that was going on. Not only did they resist inside of the establishment, but an enormous crowd erupted outside of the bar to protest injustice. Over the next three days and nights, locals gathered at Stonewall to protest and bring awareness to the prejudice and discrimination that the LGBTQ plus community regularly experienced. It's really important in LGBTQ history to note that the Stonewall riots was a watershed moment in gay rights history and in the United States. It sparked activism and awareness of the issues that were plaguing the LGBTQ plus community, as well as served as a spark that ignited the gay rights movement. This upcoming June 28th will be the 52nd anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, which also serves as a reminder of the milestones and achievements that have been accomplished by the movement since its beginnings over five decades ago. Zane, I'm really glad you're able to give us this critical insight into the history behind not only this long-standing history of discrimination, but also the danger to transgender persons as they are specifically targeted in acts of violence. And I also love the significance behind Pride Month being in June and correlating with the anniversary of the Stonewall riots. Moving forward in the time, and then the 1970s, on June 28, 1970, on the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall riots, thousands of members of the LGBTQ plus community marched through Central Park in New York City in what is regarded as the first ever gay pride parade. Wow. Flashing forward in 1973, the American Psychiatric Association finally removes homosexuality from the DSM, uh, which was a great feat for gay rights. In 1974, Kathy Kozachenko became the first openly gay American elected to public office in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And in 1979, a national march on Washington for lesbian and gay rights occurred. The LGBTQ people and straight allies demanded equal rights and civil rights and urged the passage of protected civil rights uh, from government officials. This national march in Washington uh, served as one of the very first uh, national events that LGBTQ 
individuals in the United States conducted. That's amazing. The following year, in 1980, Democrats became the first major political party to endorse a homosexual rights platform. The 80s was a very scary time to be a member of this community. Important issues arose that challenged the intersectionality between sexuality, medicine, race, and politics. And it was a very sad and tragic era in the history of the United States indeed. With that, I will hand it over to Dr. Blair Peters, who will give an overview on critical moments in queer medical history. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Zane. That was a super concise overview of a lot of kind of queer history in the earlier decades of the queer and gay liberation movement. And I just want to point out a few things about what you went over. It's interesting how even the language being used at that time of gay rights. At that time, gay was sort of used to encompass everyone in the queer community. And it's important to point out that most of the people that were actually doing the work and fighting for what we refer to now as queer liberation were really the most marginalized members of that movement. So, you know, butch uh, lesbians, really femme men, transgender individuals, drag queens, really the people that didn't really have the luxury of being able to blend in and just, you know, take safety back in the closet. And you can see that so many of those early uprisings and so many of the sparks that really ignited the fire of queer liberation were really from these individuals and notably Black transgender women of color. And that's where, you know, iconic names like Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson are coming into play. So I think it's really important for people to know that because sometimes when you look back at a lot of the earlier depictions, it's being described as gay liberation. And a lot of that's because we didn't really have the language. Um, Transgender wasn't really a word at that time. And a lot of what would be referred to as transgender woman now were referred to as drag queens back then. And those are kind of two entirely different things. So just really understanding a lot of that history is, I think, important. And just as you said, you know, Stonewall was really that big initial movement, but it absolutely wasn't the first example of queer uprising. And you mentioned a cafe in San Francisco earlier on, I think it was a year or two earlier, and that's actually called Compton's. Um, and the the visual of that sort of riot is actually um, depicted in Tales of the City, which I think you can stream on Netflix if you want to actually sort of see a visual of what that looked like. And there's also a documentary on Amazon Prime um, called Compton's Cafeteria, which can tell you more about that as well. But kind of shifting kind of to the 80s now, a lot happened in the 80s, (laughs) for sure. And I'm going to plug a few different things to sort of help picture what some of this looked like. One is a new series that you can stream, I believe, on HBO Max called It's a Sin, which follows a group of queer friends basically going through the discovery of and the effects of HIV AIDS on their friend's circle. I believe this was in the London, uh, London, UK, which is where they were. But obviously, we sort of associate that with more New York, but it's really any big kind of quote, unquote, gay city in the world at this time. But yeah, the 80s was really, in many ways, all about the HIV AIDS epidemic, and the emergence of groups like ACT UP. And, you know, July 3rd, 1981 is when the New York Times prints this first story that talks about a rare pneumonia, which of course would be PCP, and a skin cancer, which would be Kaposi's sarcoma that was found in cohorts of gay men in New York and California. And at the time, the CDC initially referred to this disease, they called it as GRID, or Gay-Related Immune Deficiency Disorder. You know, another example of Western medicine sort of 
blaming the victims and the community actually suffering from a disease. And I think understanding things like that can really affect your interactions with queer patients and why there can be a lot of historical trauma between the queer community and even present day Western medicine. And it wasn't actually until, you know, AIDS was found outside of the gay community that the name was actually changed to reflect that it wasn't a gay disease. It wasn't until two years later in 83 that the virus HIV was actually detected. And 1985, when we actually had some form of testing um, in the form of ELISA available. 1987 was a pretty big year. That was when we saw the establishment of the iconic AIDS advocacy group called ACT UP. ACT UP is the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which was formed in response to the devastating effects that HIV AIDS crisis was having on the community. And their huge focus was really to bring political and a lot of media attention to the devastating effects that the epidemic was having on the queer community and really challenging pharmaceutical companies on the lack of prescription access and lobbying for political change amidst the epidemic. And some of the visuals behind the activism that was happening with ACT UP are absolutely iconic. And luckily for us, a lot of it's been caught on film. And I really encourage you to check out some of that footage if you haven't. Some of the images have been recreated. Um, Pose, which is a series that FX puts out, has recreated both the church die-in as well as the condoming of Jesse Helms' house, which just pretty amazing things that these activists did to try to be seen and be heard. We saw the same year the National March on Washington, which is another pivotal, pivotal moment in queer history, really demanding the president at the time, Reagan, to address the AIDS crisis, because up until this point, the White House hadn't even uttered the word AIDS and refused to really acknowledge that anything was going on. Um, it was the same year that we saw the first drug available, AZT, to treat AIDS being approved by the FDA. And about a year later in 88, um, we saw the CDC start to take things more seriously and mail out an educational brochure called Understanding AIDS to over 100 million households throughout the United States. And that same year was when the World Health Organization actually organized the first ever World AIDS Day to raise awareness of the spreading epidemic. And that is on December 1st, for those who aren't familiar. Now, looking into the 1990s, we sort of had this culture war starting to happen and there was some examples of progress, but then also some examples of the opposite. And, you know, in 90, um, George Bush signed the Ryan White Care Act. And if you're unfamiliar, Ryan White is a teenager. He was 13 at the time when he contracted AIDS from a blood transfusion that he received for hemophilia. And he was so heavily discriminated against for, you know, this disease at the time in his school. And it really pushed him to become an HIV AIDS activist right up to the time of his death, which is, you know, amazing for a 13 year old. And, you know, Bush signed the Ryan White Care Act, which was the first federally funded program for people living with AIDS. In 91, the Visual AIDS Artists Caucus launched the Red Ribbon Project, which established the Red Ribbon as a symbol for awareness and compassion for those living with HIV. And by the end of 93, it was estimated that there were over two and a half million AIDS cases globally. In 95, we saw the first protease inhibitor um, be available. And now with highly active antiretroviral therapy, this has really radically changed the prognosis of HIV AIDS. And 
I think this is a good time as well to just, you know, plug the idea, not the idea, the fact of undetectable being untransmissible. And there's unfortunately so much stigma attached to a diagnosis of being HIV positive. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that it was initially labeled as a gay disease. And the reality is that if you're on proper medication, HIV AIDS is no longer a death sentence. It's no longer this horribly morbid thing. And, you know, it's a chronically managed condition. And if you have an undetectable viral load, you cannot pass on HIV to someone else. So I think it's really important that people know that. And, you know, we make that clear in our efforts to destigmatize HIV AIDS. You know, but as we saw the AIDS pandemic slowly beginning to stabilized throughout the 90s and 2000s, a lot was still happening socially and politically. And in 93, the Department of Defense established Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which basically forbade the military from asking applicants about their sexuality, but it also forbade recruits from disclosing their sexual orientation or engaging in quote-unquote homosexual or queer behavior. And this, in effect, really forced people either back into the closet or padlocked the door to their closet so that they weren't able to actually get out of it. In 96, we saw Clinton's Defense of Marriage Act, which really basically stated that marriage was a legal union between one man and one woman, and that no state was required to recognize a same-sex marriage from out of state. And in 1998, Coretta Scott King, who is the widow of civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr., actually called on the civil rights community to join the struggle against homophobia, queerphobia. And, you know, she received a lot of criticism from members of the Black civil rights movement for comparing civil rights to gay rights. But she was a really forward thinker and really understood and saw the intersectionality of race and gender and sexuality as key components recurring throughout queer history. Throughout the 2000s, we saw a lot of work and a lot of advocacy happening in the realm of gay marriage. And in 2000, I believe it was, Vermont became the first state in the U.S. to legalize a civil union. Um, It was Massachusetts who became the first state to legalize gay marriage in 2004 with several others following. And it was in 2015, the landmark Supreme Court ruling declaring that same-sex marriage was legal in all 50 states. A couple notable pieces of legislation from this era as well. We had Prop 8 in 2008 in California um, that voters approved, which made same-sex marriage illegal, which ultimately was struck down in, I believe it was 2010. And a lot of people will be familiar with Matthew Shepard, and that was in 2009 when the Matthew Shepard Act was passed by Congress and signed into law by President Obama, which basically expanded the 1969 U.S. federal hate crime law to include crimes motivated by a victim's gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, or disability. And as important as this was, I often talk about Matthew Shepard's case when I'm speaking about representation, and it brings up the topic of privilege within a marginalized community. And the reality is, is that there is an epidemic of violence historically, currently, and presently against especially Black transgender women of color. And there were multiple transgender people that were murdered in the weeks preceding and following Matthew's attack um, that were 
fatal hate crimes and those received little to no media attention. And that's something that is still very active today. Ultimately, the last half of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century has really seen a dramatic change in the social and political landscape for the queer community. And social justice and equity are major issues that, you know, queer individuals still face today. And it was just in 2020, I believe in June, that, you know, the Supreme Court basically passed legislation protecting queer people from discrimination in the workplace. And, you know, think about that. That means up until like June of 2020, any one of us could have been fired from our job just because we were a queer person. And, you know, although we saw things like the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and the implementation of marriage equality, that did mitigate some barriers, but it mitigated barriers for the people within our community who had the least number of them. And, you know, the beneficiaries of these policies tended to be amongst the most privileged of us being cisgender and often white gays and lesbians. And, you know, that really brings up the point of trans exclusion, which is the story that's not often told and when it is with too little force. And, you know, that's the degree with which transgender people continue to be marginalized within the overall struggle for LGBT plus or queer rights. And, you know, when I talk about queer history, I talk about these two opposing camps and we have like the culturalists who you know, are all about queer strength and queer liberation. But, you know, back in the 70s, when a lot of this was really taking off, we had the assimilationists. And ultimately, the goal of those, you know, gay and lesbian, mostly white people was to bury the most marginalized members of the community to assimilate to the heterosexual mainstream. And for many reasons, that's why we saw things like marriage equality be fought for before basic protections for transgender people. And, you know, we can't overlook that. And, you know, the founding mothers and the founding people really of queer liberation are Black transgender women. And those really are the voices that need to be centered and uplifted and heard, um, especially this month and really every other day of the year, um, because there's a lot of work to do. And that community in particular has historically and presently been a target for violence and hatred. And, you know, over the last five years alone, there's been over a hundred documented hate crimes resulting in fatalities of transgender individuals with the numbers climbing annually. At least 28 transgender people have been murdered in the first half of 2021, which already surpasses the 26 murders at least that were documented in 2020. And the transgender community is not only subject to physical violence, fetishization, But the past years have seen an uptick in anti-transgender legislation, especially in 2021. It is just trans people are under attack in basically every element of their lives. And that is referring to bathroom legislation. That's referring to transgender women in sports. That's referring to gender-affirming care for adults and kids. And in a lot of ways, transgender individuals are becoming political ploys. And it's really critical that we all are aware of what's happening and do our part, especially in healthcare, to uplift those voices and really do what we can to shut this legislation down. Thank you, Dr. Peters, for that critical insight, especially into the social and political inequities for transgender persons and also the amount of violence that is happening in this community. Zane, why don't you give us a little bit more of an overview of what's been going on, especially the last year with a lot of these policies? Absolutely, Blair. 
there really is no way that we can talk about queer history and queer medical history without addressing the history that is going on around us at this very moment. So the surge in anti-transgender legislation has been steadily increasing in its boom since 2015. In past years, we saw a surge in bathroom bans for transgender folks. This year, in 2021, the two main issues that have been brought forth. The first and overwhelmingly popular issue includes banning transgender and gender nonconforming students from participating in sports and using the bathroom and or locker rooms that align with their gender identities. And this first topic is followed closely by a ban on gender affirming healthcare for minors and the persecution of the medical professionals that provide it. So let's get into that a little bit. In 2021 alone, there has been the highest number of anti-transgender bills introduced to state legislators in all of history. Wow. 58 bills pertaining to the bathroom and locker room and youth sports ban, and 35 bans on gender-affirming healthcare for youth. So let's start with the first one. 30 states have introduced the 58 sports ban bills in 2021, with the bill passing, unfortunately, in five states, including Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, Tennessee, and South Dakota. While some of these bills have died in the approval process, many of these bills are still pending. The overwhelming number of states that have proposed and are considering the transgender anti-sports ban is honestly heartbreaking and frustrating. I agree with you, Zane. As many children use sports as an outlet, as a coping mechanism, as a means to socialize, as a way to keep healthy and active, and even more. The fact that lawmakers are focusing on exclusion of an already sensitive and marginalized group is angering, to say the least. And many groups, including parents of transgender and even cisgender children, are on the forefront of opposing this bill. These lawmakers are not only trying to ban children from playing sports, they are also trying to keep them from the health care that they need. Which brings us to our second major issue. Gender-affirming health care is life-saving for many individuals, especially transgender children. The physical changes that come with puberty may cause significant gender dysphoria, which is why medical treatment with puberty blockers with or without hormones is so important for transgender and gender nonconforming youth. A staggering 35 bills were introduced to 22 state legislators in 2021, with a majority of them banning gender-affirming medical treatments such as puberty blockers and hormones from minors seeking these treatments. While many of these bills have died in the approval process, many are still pending, and Arkansas has already passed this type of exclusionary bill. Personally, the most frustrating aspect of all of this transphobic legislature is that it is written and proposed by people who have no connection or education on the LGBTQ community, let alone transgender people, and that these lawmakers have no medical knowledge or expertise to be drafting healthcare-related bills that would effectively destroy the lives of so many people. You make a very good point, Zane, that most individuals who are creating this legislation have no medical knowledge or training, and therefore they do not understand the implications that this has on the patients we are treating. Unfortunately, in my state of Alabama, this bill is known as SB10, or the Alabama Vulnerable Child Compassion and Protecting Act, which is laughable because this bill is the exact opposite of compassionate. This bill not only prohibits minors from being treated with hormones and or puberty blockers, It also persecutes medical professionals for providing any of these services, making it a Class C felony. At the peak of the bill's introduction and amidst the Alabama lawmakers actively debating SB 10, a sergeant from the Gaston Police Department was present and advocated for his transgender daughter. 
David Fuller of the Gadsden Police Department relayed how he was shocked when his daughter came out to him as transgender, but that the guidance they received from her medical professionals and the gender-affirming care she received was not amenable to any kind of persecution. While the transgender sports ban unfortunately passed in our state, SB 10 thankfully failed due to the tireless efforts of multiple social justice groups, notably the ACLU of Alabama. We must continue to fight and advocate for our transgender brothers and sisters. And personally, as a future physician specializing in gender-affirming medicine and surgery, I'm constantly advocating for my transgender and gender nonconforming patients. Zane, I am so proud that you have already become such a huge advocate for the patients in this community. The future of transgender medicine and transgender surgery lies in the hands of individuals such as yourself who are dedicated to advocating for the rights of this community. Transgender people were a huge part of my family growing up, especially during my formative years in high school and college. And I've seen firsthand the impact that the social and political climate has on the lives of those around me. As a non-transgender individual, the foundation for advocating for transgender patients is allyship, aka the practice of emphasizing social justice, inclusion, and human rights by members of an in-group to advance the interests of an oppressed or marginalized out-group. For example, in the story I just told, Sergeant Fuller demonstrated allyship by using his position of power, being part of the in-group, to advocate for his transgender daughter, part of the out-group. Medical professionals can also have a high impact factor when it comes to allyship and advocacy, which is why it's so important for us to be well-educated and informed on exactly how to do so. So, Dr. Peters, can you tell us more about your experiences with allyship, how we can incorporate it into our daily lives, and the importance of representation? Yeah, I absolutely can. I could talk about either one of those topics for a very long period of time, but I'll definitely start by highlighting a few important concepts. Um, I feel like my own journey with representation and allyship is an ongoing and ever-evolving one. Um, And, you know, I think I continue to learn more every time I speak to this topic. But starting at least with representation, There's a lot happening in the diversity, equity, and inclusion world. And I think there's this huge focus on representation. And it's so often overlooked that representation is kind of like the end goal or the end product. And there's a lot of things that need to happen in order to actually have meaningful representation or meaningful inclusion, whatever your preferred term would be. I look at representation as kind of being inclusion. And the reality is, is that if you aren't visible, then you can't represent anything. And there's so many sectors of the world, um, medicine notably, where you're almost expected to assimilate, to sort of blend in with the crowd, to advance in an organization or whatever that may be. And a lot of that culture really works against visibility. And for many members of the queer community, especially Black transgender women, queer people of color, In a lot of areas, it's not actually safe to be visible. So if we want representation, we need to actually create and provide an environment that allows for visibility in a safe fashion. And once we have visibility, then individuals can provide representation. And I think we need to change the narrative a little bit about how we're approaching those things. I feel like there's so many academic organizations that are wanting to meet these DEI criteria and are looking for representation, 
but aren't recognizing that there's an actual shift in their cultures that needs to take place to actually have meaningful representation and meaningful inclusion. And if we're not careful, a lot of queer representation especially can look like tokenism. And that's when you just have, you know, one or two people from a particular demographic who are put in certain positions. And in in my own way, I think of like, I think of it like, you know, maybe you're slightly, slightly increasing diversity, but you're not actually providing any meaningful inclusion. And that doesn't really help anything. In order for an individual to be included, that actually means feeling a cultural and an environmental sense of belonging. And the reality is, is that the really dominant narrative of heterosexuality and the really rigid gender binary is so dominant, both in medicine, but also just in culture in general. And it creates this really strong undercurrent and this feeling that you do need to assimilate in order to succeed. And it's so hard for people to not get swallowed up by this, or if you do get swallowed up by it, to get out of the grasp of that current. And looking at sort of queer representation, we don't want it to be a small amount of diversity without meaningful inclusion. And I think it's really important to keep that in mind. Um, And it's so much more than you know, having especially a cisgender white gay man or a cisgender white lesbian on your faculty, it's it's not just taking the most marginalized or sorry, the most privileged people from a marginalized group and calling that representation. Um, representation is really looking at the queer community as a whole and hearing transgender voices, hearing the voices of queer people of color, because um, in many ways, they really are the most important and founding voices of the queer rights movement. So those are some of my thoughts on representation and how that relates to visibility. I love that. Meaningful representation, something we don't really think about enough. As far as allyship goes, that's an interesting term, even allyship. I was recently challenged on a, or not challenged, but sort of just had an interesting discussion in a recent talk that I gave about allyship and about how maybe that's not the best term. And the term accomplice was brought up. And that's language that was originated mostly by Black women and speaking about how, you know, accomplice is really in the trenches fighting the fight with you, whereas an ally is someone kind of on the sidelines trying to support you. And I think I like the term accomplice for a very active ally. And that's really what allyship is. And I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm an ally. Like I love gay and queer people, but they don't actually do anything to really earn that term. And ally isn't something you can self-appoint. You have to earn the title of being an ally and the word itself implies action. And we need to really shift the spectrum on allyship. And there's a lot of people, especially in the last year, I think that are sitting in that state of neutrality or sort of passive allyship where they're generally supportive of things but they don't want to say the wrong thing they don't want to do the wrong things they just kind of are in this state of not doing a whole lot of anything and that ultimately favors the oppressor and it certainly doesn't help the oppressed group and allyship to me is taking your privilege that you have in a particular situation and giving that to someone who doesn't have that same privilege So if you're an ally, quote unquote, an accomplice, whatever your chosen term is, you don't really have the privilege of being silent any longer. And I think more than anything in my own personal experience, 
allyship starts just on the other side of personal discomfort. And I think a lot of people are scared to do that work. And ultimately, you kind of have to, and that's just reality. So in terms of core pillars of allyship, in terms of, you know, where do you start? I think more than anything, number one is getting culturally competent. There are a lot of resources out there now, and it's really your own responsibility to get educated. It's not really an acceptable excuse to be like, oh, I'm afraid to say the wrong thing or make things worse. I'm just not going to say anything at all. Then you are part of the problem. You've chosen the side of the oppressor at that point. Then you've drawn your line in the sand. And, you know, ignorance isn't an excuse to inflict harm, albeit not intended. And you need to protect and stand up for queer people. So that's what allyship or activism or accomplished being an accomplice is. It's transferring your privilege and it's correcting wrong pronouns. It is stopping someone when they're dead naming somebody. It's standing up for the oppressed group in that particular situation. And I think more than anything, it's about engaging with the community. I think it's important to participate in events and to really gain visibility and trust and in many different forums, rebuild a lot of the relationships, um, especially in healthcare that have really been damaged because of, you know, what healthcare has done to queer people. And I love a lot of the energy, especially around Pride Month. I think it's great, but, you know, it's more than just showing some sort of passive allyship around the month of June. And it's really about centering queer voices every day of the year. You know, Pride is 365. Um, We don't stop being queer outside of the month of June. So (laughs) allyship and activism shouldn't stop either. And as far as simple steps that anyone can take as a starting point beyond sort of the educational components, pronouns are a really big deal. And At this day and age, I just don't think there's an excuse to not have your pronouns on your business card, to not have them in your email signature, to not have them on your badge, to just have them on display. And I think it's even more important for cisgender people or people that, quote unquote, have obvious pronouns to display them because that shows that you are a safe space and it gives a person that maybe doesn't have, quote unquote, obvious pronouns space to really introduce them and not feel like they have to put themselves out there to be seen. So just do it. That's just the bottom line. Like I just can't be more clear about that. Language is important, especially when we start talking about the chosen name versus the dead name. And I literally had to correct my mom on this about a month ago. I think there's a lot of us that before we get educated, we'll say, oh yeah, you know, so-and-so used to go by this name and now they go by their new chosen name. And that's just not okay. Once a person transitions and makes their chosen name known, that's it. Then that dead name is exactly as it sounds. It means that name is dead to you and under no circumstances do you utilize or does that name come out of your mouth? Um, So that's just a fact. And I think we all need to embrace and be a lot better at that. And I think we all have this just obsession with trying to label and put people into particular boxes. And, you know, even the concept of non-binary, it's not just a third gender and it's not just another way to categorize people that don't fit into the binary. So we need to just worry less about labeling people and worry, worry more about affirming people and supporting people and who they are and not trying to just categorize them. And 
we can't confuse equity and equality. And, you know, I have a tattoo on my hand that's an equality symbol. And I got that both to sort of center me in the operating room if I'm doing a hard case or also just to be a symbol to patients and people that I'm in a safe space. But I actually call it an equity symbol now because I think my own understanding of equality and equity has shifted. And equity involves this very robust system and a dynamic process that's consciously designed to create, support, and sustain social justice. And equality is this concept of same treatment, and it doesn't take into account the differing needs or disparate outcomes of different groups. And I love this quote, whoever said it first is unknown, but, you know, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And I think any of us that have been accustomed to privilege, myself included as a cis-ish white man, albeit gay, like I've felt that in certain moments before I went through my own process of education. And it really brings up this idea of the minority tax and the role of the white guy in DEI work. And so much of this work and so much of this activism is done by underrepresented minority groups. And very often, you know, especially in academia, these activities aren't recognized as important for promotion, which further contributes to disparities. And DEI work shouldn't be the work of underrepresented minority groups. It's often in most areas of life, white men that traditionally hold power and opportunity. And that's the group that's most poised to help strengthen their field through the inclusion of other voices. And they're also the group most able to sponsor underrepresented people, especially queer people. And white men can be excellent allies. But again, that's a choice. You need to take steps to actually be a quote-unquote ally. Um, and I think it's just important for them to hear that, you know, it's not about giving opportunities to people who are undeserving. And it's certainly not about denying opportunities for you. And I think that really brings up that whole point of when you're so used to privilege, any equality or equity feels like oppression. And that's not what it is. And I think they just need to realize that. And as far as sort of taking up space goes, I think so often we're heard or we're told, you know, be, be yourself and, you know, everything else is going to work out, but it's just not that easy. The reality is, is that, you know, if you want to like take up space, you need to actually be able to get in the room to take up space in the room that you want to be in. And this is where really allyship comes in. If you have privilege or position or power, then you're in that room and if you want to be an ally, then you need to take up as much space as you can so you can make space to give to someone that can't get in the room without you. And I think the last thing I want to sort of talk about is a concept of my own called the glass wall. And I just think it's an interesting and useful visual metaphor. Everyone's obviously familiar with this concept of a glass ceiling. And I think there's this misconception, especially by people not in the queer community, that coming out is this like grandiose one big event in a queer person's life. And the reality is, is that we come out many times a day in many different situations. And as a queer person, you're socialized to feel othered, you're socialized to feel different. And every time that you have a conversation with someone as a queer person, it's like a choice of how queer and how visible to make yourself. And you feel that and you feel every time that you're going to gender a partner or 
talk about what you did that weekend. And that's what I call the glass wall. And being queer in this world is an act of resistance. And it takes strength to push through that wall and to be seen and to be visible and to be heard. And the reality is, is that punching through a wall over and over again gets exhausting. It gets tiring, especially when you as a group aren't placing those walls in front of yourself. And we all have different thickness of glass. And, you know, the thickness for me to punch through is much, much less than a Black transgender woman of color. You know, it shouldn't be up to queer and oppressed people to have to push through these walls themselves. We need people on the other side, albeit allies or accomplices, to also take those walls down for us. And I know that was a whole lot of concepts talked about in a short period of time. But again, I think representation is critical, but we can't forget about how we get to representation and allyship is needed more than ever but again it's a process and it takes work and it doesn't stop outside of the month of june absolutely thank you so much dr peters for all of your insight on allyship and representation being visibly queer is truly an act of resistance And I think what stuck out most about what you just said to me is the thickness of the glass wall is not only dependent on the individual, but is dependent on those around them. And the fact that you mentioned assimilation is so interesting because this is a recurring theme in medicine and especially in surgery. Allyship, like you said, is so important. And like you said, shifting from neutrality to activism is one of the key steps in increasing representation truly increasing representation, and we should be incorporating these practices into our lives daily. Transferring privilege to those who don't have it is a true meaning of allyship, so thank you for bringing that up and speaking on that. Thanks, Dr. Peters and Zane. I second everything you said as well. I am so motivated. I'm enlightened. My eyes have been opened. I'm really interested in this glass wall concept and the thickness of the wall and how it's exhausting in ways that I can help with my privilege. And it's interesting that, you know, in the past, I've kind of been guilty of what you were saying and that I've just been too scared to speak up or scared to say the wrong thing or, you know, standing neutral. And that's unacceptable. So going forward, I hope to do better, and maybe one day I can deserve that name of an ally. And I'm definitely getting some pronouns to put on my white coat, because although I have been thinking about it, I have been been guilty of not going forward with being active and actually putting them on my white coat. So I'm definitely going to do that. Thank you for the suggestion. And again, thank both of you so much on such an educational piece on the history, on what it means to be an ally. I love that pillars of allyship and being active instead of neutral. I just love all of it. So I hope that our listeners can really benefit from hearing this and maybe they will gain some insight on what the next step is for maybe taking a step in the right direction and helping and being an activist and being motivated to help this community. And with that, I would like to thank all of our listeners. We hope that our listeners learn something from our Pride Month episode and hopefully incorporate active allyship into their daily lives. Like you said, Pride is 365, not just the month of June. Pronouns should be visible whether they're obvious or not. 
language is critical and all these practices are extremely important as all these seemingly minor number practices end up making a huge difference in the end. Affirmation and allyship are active efforts and we hope our listeners take that with them throughout this Pride Month and beyond. So thank you all for listening to our Pride Month episode and thank you so much, Dr. Peters, for your expertise and knowledge on these very important topics. Thank you so much. I am very, very happy to be on the podcast. It's been really, really cool to see, um, especially plastic surgery as a specialty step up and start giving a platform for these important issues. And I love that, you know, an academic podcast is talking about these things because ultimately, you know, queer history paints every interaction that you'll have with a patient, um, whether that's in gender affirming care or just a queer patient getting any sort of routine medical care or surgical care. And it's important to understand some of where they may be coming from. I don't want you to feel overwhelmed after this podcast. You know, there's a lot about queer history. There's a lot that's happening in the political spectrum. And there's a lot to talk about in terms of representation and allyship. So I think I want to leave you with just a couple action items. So easy things that you can do to sort of start your own journey. And if there's one thing that I want you to do, it is to read a book. It's called Beyond the Binary by Alok Manon, a non-binary activist and artist. Now, I know a lot of people don't really read books, but this is literally like 88 pages. It, I believe, can be purchased for less than $9. And you can read it literally in just over an hour. And it's really about how the gender binary is damaging to all of us, um, regardless of your sexual or gender orientation or identity. And it's going to speak to you no matter who you are. And it's going to heal parts of you that you didn't know need to be healed. And it's so incredibly informative. And I give it to almost anyone that I interact with now at this point, because I just think it is so, so important. So that's an amazing foundation for you to, I think, start questioning things. And I really, really encourage you to check that out. Um, Beyond that, like it's been probably said more times than I could count in this podcast, pronouns are critical. So just, just do it. Like, don't question it. Just do it. That's all I really have to say about that piece of it. And then just continue your own education. And some of that can be consuming queer media. I do in particular want to plug. It's a brand new series that just came out again by FX. FX is doing amazing things. It's called Pride. And it's a six part series. Um, I actually just streamed it yesterday. It's available on Hulu. And there's an episode for each of the decades that we talked about. So there's the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s. And that will talk about a lot of the sort of landmark historical events that we've touched on, but it'll also talk about a lot of culture in that time. And there's a lot of beautiful imagery and will highlight a lot of sort of queer heroes and activists. And it's a really easy way for you to not just learn a lot, but also just really immerse yourself in queer culture. And yeah, I recommend everyone check that out. You can follow me at Queer Surgeon on Instagram. Um, I put out a lot of educational materials if you want to use that to help you on your journey as well. And yeah, happy educating. Thank you again, Dr. Peters. You've been a huge inspiration, not only to me, but everyone in the medical community and especially the plastic surgery community. I'm very proud that we can use this platform to help educate everyone on the history and how to be an ally. For our listeners, make sure and also follow us on Instagram at the Loop Podcast to get in the loop. Happy Pride!